the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show podcast. Have any questions or comments? Email Pastor Scott now at PastorScott at KKLA.com. Or tune in live weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. And now, here's Pastor Scott. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Pastor Scott Show, 888-528-2557. Special announcement. I have made the decision not to run for president in 2024. Should I call a press conference for that? I find that funny because uh, Governor Sununu of New Hampshire decided not to run, and he made a major announcement and put op-eds in the newspapers uh, to tell everybody that he's not running. Seems like everybody else is running, so maybe that's the story. But I don't know. It's kind of funny to me to make a big announcement that you're not going to do something. Anyway, I'm going to make that announcement. I'm not running uh, for president in 2024. Uh, Not yet. 888-528-2557. Right now my wife's going, wait, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? 888-528-2557. Lots of people coming out saying that they're running for president. Uh, For a while I thought uh, maybe hardly anybody in the Republican side, but uh, now there's a bunch. Um, Remember last time around they had uh, two – there were so many Republicans running for president – in 2016, that they needed two rounds of debates. Everybody was running. And uh, Donald Trump would come up with a nickname and then flick them all off the stage one at a time. That was that was how that went. And maybe it's going to be the same this time. I don't know. Uh, there's at least three Democrats running for president, if you didn't know. Joe Biden, of course, uh, announces he's running for president. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for president. And Marianne Williamson, who's kind of, uh, you know, she would be the the I mean, this is an insult, but she is the, you know, the, the B team candidate, right? That, uh, and probably RFK Jr. is because a lot of people haven't heard of him. Except here's the thing. He's polling 20% among Democrats, 20%. And she's got eight. So I don't know, you know, 28, 30% not going with the sitting president. That doesn't happen too often. Uh, so we'll see. There's not going to be any debates at this point on that side. Of course, my theory is that President Biden will not be the candidate ultimately. And then I think you're looking at uh, Governor Newsom or you're looking at uh, Hillary Clinton, who emerges. And she's younger than both Biden and Trump by a couple of years. Uh, So she can play the young person card. I think that's interesting. Here's a question for you, though, that's on my mind is what policies forget about who you're who you're voting for. And regardless of what regardless of what party you're in. okay, what policies do you think? are the most important this time around. Like if you just didn't have your person, or maybe you're already an undecided voter, and undecided voters do exist. You know, there's there's always this group of people that are undecided. Uh, Sometimes undecideds are people who just don't want to say for one reason or another. But actually, most voters, particularly people who are more independent, they, they can be swayed. There's a certain group of people, and I think maybe now more than ever, that can be swayed. What what is the most telling thing for you? Maybe even as a believer, as a as a Christian, what is it that would be the policy 
that you think is most important. 888-528-2557. 888-528-2557. What got me thinking of this was James Comey. You remember him? He was the director of the FBI. Trump ultimately fired him. Um, and he's one of these people who ultimately wasn't liked by by either side. Remember, he was investigating Hillary Clinton and the emails, and the Republicans were happy and the Democrats were mad. And then he came out and he did a, did a press conference in 2016, and he said, yes, uh, some material was on there that shouldn't have been, and there's all these problems. Um, but then he said, but we're not going to prosecute, and no prosecutor would do it. And now the Democrats were happy and the Republicans were mad. And then 11 days before the 2016 election, he came out and said, we're reopening the investigation against Hillary Clinton. And now the Democrats are mad and the Republicans are happy. And then the day before the election, he said, oh, never mind. It's not going to turn up anything. And now everybody's just mad. And I think most people have just been mad and President Trump ultimately fired him. And I think most the interesting thing is today, all these years later, most people on both sides think, particularly after the whole Russia thing, that uh, – President Trump made the right decision. But regardless of all of that and whatever you think of all that, this is some comments that he said um, being interviewed by Jen Psaki this weekend. You were a Republican most of your life, uh, but voted for and you may still consider yourself one, but voted for Biden in 2020. Do you intend to vote for him again or is there anyone on the Republican side you might consider if it's not Trump? It has to be Joe Biden. Now, that, that I thought was very, very interesting. It has to be Joe Biden. So none of the other people running, either Democrats or Republicans. And, and I'm glad he's willing to serve. It has to be somebody committed to the rule of law, committed to the values of this country. And I, I'm not talking about policy. People can disagree about policy. There are things above those disagreements that all of us should think about the same way. The president must be someone who abides the law in our Constitution. And there's no one else but Joe Biden. No one else of all those people running on either side and only Joe Biden. He's the only one in it his opinion. It has to be Joe Biden. That's amazing to me. And see, he's talking about policy. And really, I asked you the question about policy. But what I mean is what's really above that? And that's the question I, I really meant to ask is there's economic policy, education policy, health policy. We all have opinions about that. What is above all of that? And that is the statement that he made that got me thinking. It has to be somebody committed to the rule of law, committed to the values of this country. And I'm not talking about policy. People can disagree about policy. There are things above those disagreements that all of us should think about the same way. The president must be someone who abides the law and our Constitution. And there's no one else but Joe Biden. There's nobody else. And, and if you're for Joe Biden, that's fine. But is he the only one? He's the only one who's going to abide by the law. Yeah, I understand that President Trump is controversial and all those things, but the rest of these guys running for president. So um, Mike Pence announced today, I mean, he celebrated for obeying the law on the January 6th thing. Most people like him or not. Most people think he did the right thing. Ron DeSantis is running. Tim Scott is running. Is, is Tim Scott really somebody? Ron DeSantis? somebody, R.F. Kennedy Jr., whatever you think of these guys, are do they think that somehow they are above the Constitution? That's the part that I found really remarkable about that. It has to be Joe Biden. It's, I guess Joe Biden is the only one. So here's the people who are running for president so far that have actually declared. They filled out the paperwork. They're not just putting rumors out there. Uh, Joe, for the Democrats, Joe Biden, of course, President Biden, R.F. Kennedy Jr., and Marianne Williamson, who talked about those three. Um, all three are running. Uh, I guess there will be primaries, but there's not going to be debates. 
at this point. I think that changes, you know, obviously if Joe Biden drops out, it changes if RF Kennedy, you know, how what percentage does he have to have? You know, he has to look like he's going to win or that he could win, I suppose, to put the political pressure uh, to do that. But regardless, you got three Democrats running for president and uh, 20 percent even are for RFK and 8 percent for Marianne Williamson. Uh, On the Republican side, here's who's announced so far. Ron DeSantis, Larry Elder, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, Corey Stapleton. Didn't realize he put the paperwork in and uh, Donald Trump. And then there's a bunch of people who are threatening to run. Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie's threatening to run. I guess. uh, Oh, Stapleton might be the governor of. uh, No, he's the he was the Montana secretary of state. I heard today that the governor of North Dakota uh, put his paperwork in to run. Does anybody know that guy's name? (laughs) He's not he's not on the official uh list right now uh Doug Burgum is his name you know there's there's more people who live on your street in LA or San Diego than live in North Dakota did you know that uh so probably everybody knows who Doug Burgum is if you live in North Dakota cuz he lives on your street uh most likely which is an interesting thing right he represents a very small number of people but he easily could become the next president i think if Donald Trump were to drop out for some reason um then it could be any one of those guys on the Republican side get the nomination, especially if Donald Trump and if people don't go for DeSantis. DeSantis is the only one who's somewhere, right? Are there policies? Like, what do you want to hear from these people that is even above just what you think about education or just what you think about taxation or just what you think about the border? Are there things that really matter to you from leadership anywhere? Uh, not simply, you know, running for president, they get all the attention these days. Um, but there's other leaders. Have you thought about that? See, I think it's worth, it's worth thinking. I don't agree with James Comey at all that those people see themselves as somehow above the law. Let's listen to what he says here again. It has to be somebody committed to the rule of law, committed to the values of this country. And I'm not talking about policy. People can disagree about policy. There are things above those disagreements that all of us should think about the same way. The president must be someone who abides the law in our Constitution. And there's no one else but Joe Biden. No one else. Of all the people who are running and threatening to run, it's only Joe Biden. It has to be Joe Biden. Okay. Uh, Wow, that just just kind of amazes me here. So I started thinking about this, though. And, you know, when we think about leadership and we think about and I'm a presidential historian, okay, I'm a history major, and I focused a lot on U.S. presidents and things. There comes a time when we, when presidents usually, unless there's some kind of disaster or scandal, they're usually remembered for their leadership or their lack of it, okay? That's usually, regardless of their party, when time goes by and we get over whatever it is that's sort of locally upsetting, they're not even usually remembered for the economy, You'll remember Herbert Hoover for the economy because there was the Great Depression. Okay, but that doesn't come around too often. We've had other depressions, but that was, and we don't, you probably, unless you're a historian, couldn't even mention whatever presidents were presidents during other depressions. We've had recessions, but we're talking about depressions. You, you probably think Herbert Hoover. 
And then you think Roosevelt, you know, with the New Deal and stuff coming out of the Depression. But most people today agree that probably it's World War II that really got us out of the Depression. And Roosevelt was president long enough where you remember those things. But it's usually the the leadership, right? Whatever happens in history with Joe Biden or Donald Trump or Barack Obama, George W. Bush, the leadership thing will be how they're judged after we get past the emotionalism of certain things, you know, or the what if they do this or those kinds of things. Like, where was the leadership? Most people, you know, when you go to presidential libraries, which typically, you know, are there to honor whoever the president is, some of them are better than others at that. Some of them are more honest than others. Uh, the I know they redid the Nixon library a few years ago, and I haven't been down there, honestly, since they redid it. I used to be there all the time because I lived nearby. They used to have this big tunnel that you would walk through, and you could actually listen to all the Watergate tapes. And President Nixon wanted that in there when he was alive. And he wanted that in there because he recognized that despite the fact that he had been a great leader over time, the thing he's going to remember be remembered for is Watergate. And that undermines his leadership. And a lot of the things that were behind that, his personal struggles – undermined the leadership uh, of, and I imagine those tapes are still there. At one point, today, the Jimmy Carter Library in Atlanta has, today, if you go in there, there's something in there that says, hey, you know what, leadership fell apart for him, particularly in 1980. And there's this wall, and it says something like, uh, 1980, the horrible year or something. And there's just, if you know your history, there's just multiple decisions that didn't go well. Okay, there's the hostage crisis in Iran. There was a rescue attempt. It didn't go well. The boycott of the 1980 Olympics. Uh, so many, the economy was bad. Interest rates were bad. Inflation was bad. All, so many different things were bad. And Carter famously made the, uh, it was called the Malaise speech. And uh, where he tried to encourage Americans, you know, when you watch it, you get the, you get the, the spirit of it. The spirit of it is, uh, you know, Americans need an attaboy and we need to trust our, but it was kind of a spanking. You know, it, it just came across that uh, everybody is so sad and we need to not be sad about our country. And it just it did not come across in an optimistic way. I think he meant it in a better way than it came across. But people criticized his leadership for that. Um, they acknowledged that. And I, I bring that up because the original Carter Library didn't have that in there at all. It was remarkable. They had, you know, it didn't mention the hostage crisis very much, small print somewhere. Um, but it talked about terrorism and why we need to deal with it. And it didn't talk about the energy crisis, which we had back then. If you're old enough to remember being in lines and car lines waiting for gas and all these different rules about who can buy gas and who couldn't buy gas. It was crazy. Um, that was a not a good time. That was kind of ignored. But in the new one, it's there. And I give Carter a lot of credit because in the redesign, he was a part of that. And he said, no, these things ought to be in there. They're a part of history. And I think that's also good leadership. Good leadership is people who can acknowledge their their faults or acknowledge where they fell short. And that also makes it a lot more palatable when they also talk about the great things that they did. The Camp David Accords, for example, in the Carter Library, Camp David Accords was he got the leaders of Israel and Egypt together at Camp David and got them to hammer out a peace agreement that nobody thought was possible. And he sat there with them to do that. He put in a lot of the work. And there's a whole area on that. I think that's it's worthy to have that in there. But you also have to acknowledge he, he wasn't that good on some other stuff. I think that's great. I think that's normal. That's that's the human condition. 
see, there is something higher than the policies. It's one thing to say you're going to do a bunch of stuff. And it's another thing to actually have what it takes to get it done. It's one thing to say a bunch of stuff. It's another thing to mean it and really try to get it done. You know, often politicians, they will promise the world um, and then they get in office and they don't do anything to get that particular thing done. Sometimes they try and they don't have the capability. And often it's because, well, the other party holds the Congress and holds the purse strings. But you know what? The great leaders are able to accomplish things even though the other party has control. Most of Ronald Reagan's term, uh, all of his term, the Democrats had the House of Representatives. They had been in the House of Representatives nonstop for 40 years by the end of his term. And yet he got a lot done through there. Uh, That's where you see leadership. You see the leadership of other presidents in different eras of time. Um, uh, Harry Truman was a president who, when he left office, he was highly criticized for a lot of things. He was not popular. Now, today, because of his leadership in reflection, he's usually seen as one of our top five presidents. Did you know that? Harry Truman. Usually up there in that list, you got Washington and you got Lincoln, and then you've got FDR, Teddy Roosevelt, and Truman, of all people. Usually when people look back, and it's because the decisions that he made that were criticized at the time turned out to be probably the right decisions. And one of those decisions was the atomic bomb. Terrible, terrible decision to have to make. One of those decisions was recognizing Israel. Nobody wanted him to recognize Israel. The Democrats were against it. The Republicans were against it. And most of the world was against recognizing Israel as a state. And Harry Truman did that, and it was extremely unpopular at the time. But it wasn't too long after that that people said, you know what, actually that was a really good decision. And there were many decisions like the integrating the military. Uh, some people didn't want that. And at the time, people were like, that's, that's going to make us less strong, that if we're having to deal with people's racial tensions and other stuff, our military is going to be distracted. That's what the argument was back then. But very quickly over time, people realized, you know what, actually, that's not happening. That isn't something that was happening in the military, and the military was better for it. And it was a good thing for the country, but it took some time. My thought is, is that when you think about how to vote, whether it's presidential or elsewhere, think about things even above the policy. I think the policies matter tremendously, so I'm not saying that. But they also have to get done. Leadership matters. 888-528-2557. This is the Pastor Scott Show. 888-528-2557. That when we think about our leadership, and I'm doing this when I look at all these candidates and these people running, you know, a question I have, I certainly have policy questions. There are people I will never vote for because I believe the things that they believe are going to harm our country. And the most scary thing would be is if they do have good leadership, the leadership ability to implement bad things. That's possible. Who's the leader who's going to stand up for what he or she thinks is right, even if everybody around them disagrees? That, you know, I want to know who is going to discern what is wise in the leadership of our country, who is going to discern how to know when to compromise with the other party and when not to, how to lead other people who don't agree into agreement. See, I think that's a, for me, that's a big skill. And I I think it's something that can be done. I think that not dividing the country or not living in a world where when you're the leader, if you're the president, and this is the same in your church, it's the same in your business, it's the same where you are, 
there is a ability of leaders to understand when to say no, when to point the direction and lead there in spite of whatever criticism you get. There's a time to say, this doesn't matter as much. Let's just get something done that's better than nothing. There's a discernment that goes on for for those kinds of things. But I'm looking for the type of leader who says, this is the right direction. Here's why. And who isn't just going to go there with the division, but who also wants to bring people along. That's a thing that I think is that is often missing. We've we've seen people talk about it. Hillary Clinton got in trouble when she said uh, half of Trump supporters are in the basket of deplorables. Remember that? But the next thing she said is, and they're irredeemable. It's the irredeemable part that I think is the worst. Uh, Mitt Romney got in trouble for saying that 47% of the country is going to vote for Barack Obama anyway, that there's only 6% of the country that's flexible. I don't believe that. I believe that you should be working hard to persuade people. And I also think as believers that we should also recognize that people are persuadable, even in matters of faith, even in matters of our personal testimony, even the person who you think is the most against Christ, the person who is against Christianity, against what Christians stand for, against all of that, that that person, you don't write that person off that there is leadership that in the Christian sense is often service. It's also true for any leader, that in the Christian sense is serving people, loving people, boldly speaking the truth in love, which is not a wimpy thing to do. It's a hard thing to do often, but it can be done, and it's also very persuasive. Never give up on the idea that people can be persuaded in the right direction. I think that's a big piece of leadership, big piece for all of us to think about. All right, this is the Pastor Scott Show. The number is 888-528-2557. If you'd like to join the conversation, 888-528-2557. A jet flew over Washington, D.C. this weekend, and uh, the pilot did not respond, and it crashed. I want to talk about that and uh, get your calls when we come back. 888-528-2557. This is the Pastor Scott Show. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show podcast. Have any questions or comments? Email Pastor Scott now at pastorscott at kkla.com or tune in live weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. Now, back to the show. Four F-16 scrambled to intercept an unidentified aircraft that entered restricted airspace near Washington, D.C., those jets causing a sonic boom that rattled residents across the entire D.C. metropolitan area. We're learning that a small aircraft crashed in rural Virginia. That was news reports this weekend about a plane that uh, flew over Washington, D.C. in no-fly zone area. And uh, there was rumors at first that uh, the military shot it down because they launched uh, some F-16s and they flew at... uh, what is it, supersonic speeds? Is that what, the, what it is? I don't know this because I grew up, like we said before, in Palmdale. And everybody in Washington was uh, freaked out because there was a sonic boom. And um, it's interesting that today, in today's world, so many people have that recorded because they either happen to be on their phones or now they get it from their doorbell because it's always recording. Anyway, uh, I grew up with sonic booms all the time. It's just a normal thing. But uh, I can understand why it would be very you know, scary to hear something like that. Um, when it happened. Anyway, 
That happened over Washington, D.C., and uh, here is some more of the story. In coordination with the FAA, NORAD F-16 fighter aircraft responded to an unresponsive Cessna 560 Citation aircraft. That's a business jet, Anita, over Washington, D.C. and Northern Virginia today. The NORAD aircraft were authorized to travel at supersonic speeds. During this event, the NORAD aircraft used flares in an attempt to draw attention from the pilot. The civilian aircraft was intercepted at approximately 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. The pilot was unresponsive, and the Cessna subsequently crashed near the George Washington National Forest. That's outside of Stanton, Virginia, about two and a half hours southwest of Washington, D.C., outside of Charlottesville. NORAD attempted to establish contact with the pilot until the aircraft crashed. Again, no radio contact with the pilot. Sounds like he was unresponsive, as we heard in the statement. I don't know about you, but when I hear this, these kinds of stories, if you were around at 9-11 and old enough, and uh, and maybe it surprises you that many people listening weren't, right? If you are, how old do you have to be to even have a, a memory of September 11th, 2001 that you really remember? Like maybe 30 years old? It was, it was 22 years ago here a couple of months. So if you're 22, you don't remember it, or younger, you weren't even born. If you're 20, what, 23, you wouldn't remember it. 25, you might remember something. If you're 30, you would have been, what, nine, eight years old. Maybe you, that's incredible when you think about it. Um, You probably have some kind of memory. But, you know, I got into, I remember that day vividly. Everything I did that day, I pretty much remember. And, you know, you watch these planes. And then afterward, when the planes weren't flying for a while, for I think a few days, we didn't have planes. And then we magically had a new government entity, um, Homeland Security, that was checking you into the airplanes Uh, a few days later. um, They pulled that out of a drawer. They had that ready to go, I think. The uh, Speaking of leadership, I think you do that. You get prepared for what's going to happen. But um, they – the idea that a plane was flying over Washington and not responsive, it alerts you to something if you were around for that day. And then when it crashes all of a sudden, I thought, oh, no, we shot down a a civilian aircraft. That would be a huge deal, you know, and it looks like we we didn't. As things play out, um, it's pretty clear that what happened is the the plane took off in Tennessee. It was headed to New York, and then it turned around. That's the part that I think made everybody nervous. It turned around, and then it flew right over Washington. Now, here's the flight path. That Cessna Citation business jet took off from Elizabethton. That's a city in northeast Tennessee, and flew up to Long Island, where it was supposed to land at MacArthur Airport in Islip on Long Island, before it mysteriously turned around and flew back on a southwesterly course over the nation's capital. Uh, and those Vipers, those F-16s, were moving at supersonic speeds. That's 761 miles per hour. Right now, uh, Pentagon officials say there is no indication, again, zero indication that that plane was shot down by those F-16 jets. We've had a lot of reports come out today. So the F-16s were able to get close enough, and it looks like there was cabin depressurization. The pilot turned around. Um, probably at that point, he probably should have tried to land, but I don't, I don't know what the reason was for that. And then he passed out, and probably everybody on the plane uh, passed out. And uh, <clears throat> there was a family of people on there who who owned it. It's a, when he says Cessna, it's a business jet. When I hear Cessna, I always think of, like, the tiny plane with one propeller. And I remember hearing the story going, why did they have to go to supersonic speeds to catch up with that thing? Uh, but it was actually a jet, and uh, it crashed, probably just ran out of, ran out of fuel and crash. So it's kind of a sad story. But, you know, I wanted to point this out because I also think that when we think about our country and leadership, I'm grateful that there were planes in the air.
because on 9-11, one of the controversies of, the, of that day is it took forever to get planes in the air, number one. And then I don't know what the condition was of those planes, if they were armed or not. But we, the planes that we ultimately got up, do you know this? They were not armed. Uh, the military aircraft on 9-11 that were flying over Washington ultimately in New York, they got in the air and they, they were not armed. So even if they, they eventually got the, the okay to shoot down uh, an aircraft, which would have been horrible if they would have had to do that, but they couldn't because they weren't armed. And you can read all this. It's all in the transcripts. It's a very interesting thing to, if you're into this kind of thing, I know it's a little bit morbid because of what happened, but you read the transcripts from the FAA to NORAD, which is the military, uh, where the military controls all of that. And you read the military transcripts and the discussion that's going on with the pilots, uh, one of whom was a woman that day, about can they ram, if they needed to shoot down a plane, they didn't have missiles, so could they actually run their jet into the aircraft and eject right beforehand? That's that's an amazing, and it's amazing to read those conversations, the bravery of those people in such a, a terrible situation. Um, but I have to tell you that one plane going over, a small uh, corporate jet flying over, and we got planes up this time that fast, hopefully that means we've learned something. I've always wondered about that. Maybe that's just me, but I've always wondered, did we learn anything about our security at 9-11? Because that could happen again, or something like that could happen again. Are we more prepared? Did we learn anything? Because, you know, I think on that day, the, the government agencies, they did what they're supposed to do for a while, you know, mostly, but there were certain things that clearly we were not prepared for that kind of attack on the country. It was just really clear that if there were more planes, and perhaps there were, and they got grounded or people chickened out that day, um, we were not prepared to do anything, uh, militarily speaking anyway. And to me, I hear that and I go, that's good. I don't know who made the decision. I don't know where that happened. But I'm glad that we actually had planes ready to fly, that they got up in the air, that there was a, a system that got them running. So that's a good thing. Um, about um, our country and where we're at. 888-528-2557, 888-528-2557. Earlier I was talking about leadership, and I think about that notion, and somebody got that done. There's something important about leaders who get things done. And I don't know if it was politician or president, probably there was some order, but ultimately it was military leadership who had to figure this out, who had to figure out the the rules of engagement for something like this. What kinds of things are authorized if a plane were to fly over Washington, D.C. or wherever the other no-fly no zones are? And I imagine there's some, there's some terrifying scenarios that have been played out. Leadership requires us to do that. Leadership requires us to not only think about what it would look like if something happened, but to actually have a plan to do it, to actually have a plan that if something were to happen then the planes are in the air. My guess is that they were armed. I'm hoping so. Um, not that I want that to ever happen. I don't. And it was, you know, for me, I've, I've read so much of that, I pay a lot more attention maybe to these kinds of things. I think that there is something for us as believers here with this about what are we actually going to do? Meaning that in the something that we do, and I'm a, I've been a pastor for years and church for years, and I've had an awful lot of conversation about what will, what would it actually look like if we did something, and then you talk about it, but then you don't do it. You know, what would it look like in our church if we actually met the needs of the community that we're living in? 
what do what would we need to do to do that and can we do it what would it look like if we really discipled people if we really took our ministries and our and the way we are together and we really said i'm going to invest in people who aren't believers what would it look like in your life if you actually decided you know what i'm going to i'm going to make disciples and your church probably has some sort of discipleship thing, or maybe you don't, to be honest with you, <laughs> you know, but uh, there's so many things that get in the way of it. But what would you do? And would you actually do it? I heard Francis Chan, you know, he is Pastor Francis Chan. He told this story one time about this. He said he goes into his son's room or his daughter's room, I forget which, and he said, Ima- the room's a mess. And he says, imagine if I said, what would it look like if you cleaned your room? What would it look like if we actually organized the room? And then they have a really good discussion of what it would look like, about things being in the shelf, about being able to find things, about the room being functional and the room looking nice, being able to vacuum, being able to do things that you ought to do, making the bed, those things. And what good is it to come up with a plan, what what it would look like, if you don't actually do it and the room just stays messy and nothing ever gets done? I think we do that in our lives, don't we? Can I tell you what, as a pastor, as a husband, as a father, and just as a man— Whenever I have actually not just said, what would it look like to get something done, but I actually did it, I notice a huge change. I mean, that sounds simple, right? But I actually took a plan and made it practical. What would it look like if you prayed for the people in your life who weren't believers? What would it look like if you actually took the initiative with somebody that you know, a neighbor or somebody else, just to get to know them, to invest in their life? to say, you know what, I am salt and light in my neighborhood, and I'm going to not just know that intellectually, I'm going to be that. I'll give you a way to think about that when we come back. You can also give me a call. Tell me what you think, 888-528-2557. When was a time in your life that you actually took action and went beyond just having a plan, but you did it? You accomplished it. 888-528-2557. This is the Pastor Scott Show. We'll be back as the Monday edition continues. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Pastor Scott Show podcast. Have any questions or comments? Email Pastor Scott now at pastorscott at kkla.com or tune in live weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Pastor Scott Show, 888-528-528. 2557. Do you feel inadequate to share your faith? Or do you feel like God can't use you in some place in your life to do the mission of God? Maybe you feel like you're too much of a sinner, or maybe you don't have enough understanding, or too much, uh, you're just, you have a lot of fear. You feel like you don't know enough. Can I encourage you a little bit with that? And I want to take time to do this once in a while. I haven't really talked about this in a lot of detail in a, in a bit, but the reason is because a big part of why we do what we do is we want to be better disciple makers. And even when it comes to talking about politics or things in the news and things of this world, the better we have an understanding or the deeper we can go or the way we can look at those things through the lens of the scriptures, number one, also to try to take a look at them through the lens of your your neighbor or your family member, or maybe somebody who is not a believer. You know what? How do they hear us talking about subjects that are just common everyday, you know, water cooler subjects, we used to say. How's that coming across? It matters because we want to make disciples. But I'll tell you something that I always find interesting in in the Bible. I always find this encouraging for myself, but also for anybody else, is in the Bible, some of the people in the New Testament, some of the people who were the best 
at sharing their faith were people who had just barely become believers. Like they had just had an encounter with Christ where they are then called upon to share what happened to them, and they don't know a lot. They didn't go to Christianity 101. They didn't take a theology class. They've never been to Sunday school. They maybe in some cases had never read the scriptures or they've heard different parts, but they're used by God to share even the little bit that they have. I once was blind and now I see, right? One of my favorite stories is in Mark chapter 5, and this is a this is the story of the—it's where Jesus— and I know this bothers some of you, but but don't be. Jesus restores a demon-possessed man, and this is the one where uh, he puts the demons in the pigs and they, they run over the hill, um, and they do that. And you know, if, you, if that story bothers you, you know, if there's National Geographic videos you can go rent where they're talking about voodoo in different parts of the world and all kinds of stuff, and uh, they use the same terms. When you read a lot of stuff about demon possession and stuff even in other cultures, it reads the same as the New Testament. That's what people believed was going on, okay? And that's even modern in certain places here. Um, I think that we say a lot about that subject that's not true at all. It's just not biblical. It's it's just stuff people say. At the same time, the Bible makes it clear that it's real, that there are times when that is is real, that there are other entities, spiritual entities, angels and demons that exist and that have interacted with people in different ways. Okay, but not to talk about that, but that's part of the story. So he heals this guy, okay? And what happens is Jesus, in Mark chapter 5, 18, Jesus was getting into the boat, and the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him, like you would, right? So this guy has been ostracized by the town, like you would know, you know, obviously, I think that would happen. And he wants to go with Jesus, What's funny is Jesus is getting into a boat. When I when I read this story in my brain, for some reason, Jesus is getting on a bus. That makes no sense whatsoever. But I imagine the conversation happening with Jesus on the bus, and this guy wanted to get on the bus, but Jesus won't let him. It's a boat. I don't know why I have the bus image in my brain. But it's a boat, and uh, <clears throat> I have no idea why. That's just always how I see this. But Jesus says something incredible to him. So the man wants to go with Jesus. And Jesus did not let him, but said this. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. What I find interesting is that Jesus doesn't say, go home and get your copy of the Torah and start reading it and follow the law. He doesn't say, go get your copy of uh, the scriptures and notice how it points to me that I'm the Savior, and I'm, you know, I think this guy, he's been healed. He knows that Jesus is the Savior. He's, he's figured that out from experience. And it's not that Jesus is saying, don't do that. Obviously, you go do that. But he immediately says, go tell your story to a guy who, as far as we know, doesn't really know a lot. And the next verse, it says, so the man went away and began to tell him the Decapolis, those are the, the 10 cities of that area, okay, 10 major cities. So in Southern California, you could see us being a Decapolis, you know, name your 10 biggest cities that sort of govern what happens out here, you know, Los Angeles, it matters a lot. The, the mayor of Los Angeles, decisions that happen in Los Angeles affect all of the cities in Southern California, it just does. And decisions that are made in San Diego, it affects all of the suburbs around there. 
La Mesa, El Cajon. It, it matters, okay? Some cities are just big enough, and what they do is it, it matters even to people who don't live there. So there's 10 cities, and they mattered a lot and and that region. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. And this guy becomes a, a missionary just by telling his story. We don't know of any idea how many of those people ultimately got saved. But what I like about this is the simple thing. Go to your own people, Jesus says. The word there, the the Greek word is oikos. You hear me say that a lot, your people. Oikos, it means house, household, okay, is usually how that's meant. But your household isn't, in ancient times, wasn't usually your spouse and your two and a half kids. It was the people that you did life with. So it was your spouse and your, your two and a half kids, or in those days, probably your 10 kids. And it was also, though, your next door neighbors who you shared some part of the living arrangement with most of the time. Your your boss, if you worked for somebody, because part of your pay was probably your home and your food. So you interacted, you sat at the same table with the people that you worked with, your coworkers and the person who was your boss. Or if you're the boss, you, you ate with your employees. You did life together. That's your oikos. And there's a concept of this in sociology today that matters greatly because the the simple idea is this, where people are paying attention to and taking care of the people in their life, i.e. loving their neighbor. That society does better. That community does better. Everybody does better when we're looking out for each other, when we care. Uh, the society does worse, by the way, when the government has to step in and do what you ought to be doing. That's You've got your oikos, that's groups of people. Polis is the government. You need government for courts and you need government for police and you need government for different things that, that your little group of people can't do by yourself. But as soon as the government is doing what your group of people, as soon as the government should be taking care of your neighbor and you're excused from that duty, your entire system is going to collapse. It just won't work. And that is an argument that is ancient. Big government versus small government. What should the government do? What should the government not do? You know, What should we leave to the people and what should we leave to the government? That That conversation is ancient, and it was a conversation that was happening in Greek society. If you read all those guys, Plato and Aristotle and those guys, they're having that same conversation. The oikos word was the household uh, of people who lived together, who did life together. You go, Jesus says, go to your oikos, your people, your coworkers, your classmates, if he was in school or going to school, your parents, your kids, if you had them, your cousins, whoever you did life with, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. See, one of the ways that we make disciples, in fact, the way we make disciples almost all the time is with people that God has placed in our life, and we do it by telling them what Jesus has done for us. Now, eventually in that process, you you help people grow in their faith, and you grow in your faith, and you've got people in your oikos who help you grow in your faith. But if if you're thinking to yourself, God can't use me, then I want you to think about this guy who is the most detested and full of uncleanliness person in the world at that community, and God used him to do amazing things. God used him to tell the story. God sent him out as a disciple. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the of the earth, but salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Uh, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. That word is oikos. It doesn't mean just the people living in your your house, your domicile. 
It's the people in your life. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That is Jesus when he says that. He's talking to people who believe, people who have trusted in him, people who are going to trust him. That's what you need in order to be used by God. You need to repent and you need to grow in your faith. All of that's true, but you can be used right now. You go tell your story. What has God done for you? You might have to say, I'm not living up to it right now. I'm not living the way Jesus would have me do, but I want you to know he died on the cross for my sin, and I need to repent because he's ordered me to do that. He's my Lord, but I get salvation even though I have all this sin or this thing in my background because Jesus died for me. So you've got a story to tell, whatever that is. And it's also also all of this in making disciples. It's an encouragement for you to repent. Because when you have that mindset that you need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope you have, as the apostle tells us to do, then you're thinking about others and you're thinking about your testimony. You're thinking about how you look because you're supposed to be the light of the world. And when you realize that, you repent, your life gets better. People say, how come your life's getting better? And you say, because of Jesus. And suddenly you're an evangelist. Suddenly you are demonstrating the gospel of the Lord, gospel of Christ, and people will see that and glorify your Father in heaven. What I'm telling you is, is that sometimes I think we get discouraged where we feel like God can't use us where we are. That's not biblical. He will use you where you are if you trust him. And he will use your story the way it is. He'll redeem your story. He will use it in the life of others. You know what you find out is you find out that those people that are in your life, your Oikos, they need to hear your story in a unique way. I think God does that on purpose. And he's done that for you on purpose. So pray for the people that God has put in your life. Make a list of those people, short list, okay, eight, ten people. Make a list of them, pray for them every day, and say, God, use me in their life. He's going to answer that prayer, and that changes your life, and you'll have tremendous hope. All right, we're done for today. This is the Pastor Scott Show. We're on every day, 3 to 5. Get the podcast wherever you get your podcast or at kkla.com. I'll see you tomorrow from 3 to 5. Have a good night. God bless. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.